Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, do you know where you get your energy from? We'll be joined by an expert to give us the 101 on exactly where Ireland gets its power. And as NATO attempts to prevent further Russian aggression against the Ukraine, we'll take a step back to look at how we ended up at this point of potential conflict. And finally, we're going to be joined by Nathan Law, a pro-democracy activist, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee and a former legislator from Hong Kong to talk about his new book, Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, 2021 was a difficult one for Ireland's electricity system. Systems operator Airgrid issued a number of high alerts and power shortages dominated the headlines as the gap between demand and supply was frequently squeezed. All that aligned with the supply chain issues meant that perhaps for the first time, uh, our energy supply security was questioned in a very real way. And I'm joined now by Dr. Paul Dean from University College Cork to discuss the issue. Paul, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Now, Paul, I've worked in the energy sector for a time myself, but I have to admit before that I didn't really pay much attention to where power came from when I plugged in the kettle or got in the car. So could we just start today by um, you giving us a bird's eye view of Ireland's energy mix in 2022. What does Ireland use to fuel our economy and our society and where does that fuel come from? Uh, yeah, Mandy, you know, you're, you're correct. We don't typically pay any attention to electricity or oil or gas until it's gone, until there's been some shortages. And uh, 2020 and 2021, indeed, has been a remarkable year for Ireland. Unfortunately, it has brought so much attention to uh, back to electricity supply and, 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 and other issues as well. But standing back and looking at Ireland, we're actually one of the most fossil fuel dependent countries uh, across the EU. We're probably fifth in terms of uh, the, the whole EU 27 member states. And this is quite unfortunate. And many of these are legacy issues. But if we look at how we heat our homes, most of our homes uh, around Ireland mainly are heated with, uh, with oil and with kerosene. We have one of the highest reliances of oil for the heating sectors across Europe. Part of this is a legacy issue due to one-off housing and, and, and relatively poor uh, thermally insulated homes. And then when we come to our transport, again, it's very much dominated by oil. And again, that reliance is linked to um, a relatively poor infrastructure for public transport. We don't have a lot of electrification of rail or we don't have metros, metros or those things. So we're very much exposed to oil in both uh, our transport and our heating system. And then when it comes to electricity, most of our electricity is actually generated from natural gas. Uh, about 60% of our electricity last year comes from natural gas. Now, we do, we do have some minor successes in producing uh, some energy in Ireland about Half of that natural gas is made from indigenous supply, but the other half is probably imported at the moment coming from the UK. So Ireland, even though we like to think of ourselves as a very green country and as a very efficient and renewable country, but actually we're very much exposed to the whims and to the, uh, to the, to the, to the flows of international oil markets, and international gas markets. So we're very much reliant on fossil fuel um, and we're a country that uses a huge amount of it and produces very little of it. Now, we'll come to the renewable side in a moment because that is increasing. Um, but can we just pick up on those two elements you've mentioned there, oil? Um, all of the oil we use here is imported. That's right. We don't produce any oil in Ireland. 
That's correct. Most of our oil um, mainly actually comes from, uh, comes through primarily through the UK or from the UK, from the North Sea and Norway. And we also import a little bit of oil probably from West Africa. Now we do have one refinery here in Ireland, the uh, down here in Cork. That's responsible for refining about 40% of our petrol and diesel that we see in the four courts. But the, the raw product, the crude, the crude product itself uh, mainly comes from other countries which we import. Now when you talked about natural gas there, we produce around half of it ourselves and the other half comes from the UK. How do we import that from the UK? How is it brought into Ireland? Yeah, you're right. We have we have had some success with the Kinsale gas field back in the in the 80s and 90s and more recently with car. But the rest of the gas that comes into Ireland comes via pipelines, via, via two pipelines, in fact, that come from uh, from the UK into different parts of Ireland. So we're very much reliant on that infrastructure, those pipelines and on the, the associated equipment around that and being reliable. And again, we have been quite fortunate, I suppose, in Ireland in that we've we've had a very strong and reliable uh, supply of gas into Ireland. Uh, from the UK. We've, we've actually, in fact, never had a physical interruption of natural gas coming into Ireland, which is quite amazing to think about it because we have had physical interruptions of electricity flows coming to, into Ireland from other countries from the UK uh, due to cable faults and cable shortages. So we have a very reliable supply of natural gas coming into Ireland. And that's very important because we rely on natural gas so much for producing so much of our electricity. It's very complementary to the renewables that we have in Ireland. But natural gas is also fundamentally important as well, Mandy, for a lot of industries here in Ireland for producing heat, uh, which is an important element that's often overlooked. As such big importers from the UK, I'm interested to just find out where do the UK get their gas from? Are they uh, self-sufficient or are they net yeah. importers themselves? No, they're not self-sufficient. Uh, you know, the natural gas uh, in the UK has declined significantly, um, I suppose, over the 90s and early 2000s. The UK, uh, as many people would be aware, would have uh, extracted and exploited a lot of their uh, natural gas resources from the North Sea. Uh, but the UK at the moment probably meets just a little bit under half of their natural gas uh, supply from indigenous sources, from the from active wells within the North Sea. And then they import a lot, the rest of the natural gas from places like Norway, from mainland Europe. And the UK is also very active in importing liquefied natural gas. This is a relatively, I suppose, new phenomenon in the last five or six years where natural gas cannot, can be transported not only from pipelines, but also in ships. And the UK would actually be a very strong importer of natural gas from places from very far abroad, from places like Qatar, from places uh, like the Middle East and more recently from the USA. So why does it matter then what's happening in Europe around energy supply if we're importing essentially from the UK? Yeah, it's very important because we generate so much of our electricity and so much of our heat from natural gas. And because we purchase natural gas on international on international markets and the prices for the for uh, natural gas is set in international markets in Europe. So when supply and demand are very tight in Europe, that ripples across the continent and into our electricity generation bills here in Ireland and into our heating bills in Ireland. So we're very much exposed to those effects, like many markets right across Europe, but that when, when supply is short and when demand goes up, we tend to pay a higher price. And as a part of a globally global community who's trying to uh, purchase and get access to the same resource, we all have to pay this international price, which unfortunately is very high at the moment. And again, that comes into us. We see that in our bills and uh, particularly in our electricity bills, because, again, we have so much electricity generated from natural gas. So we're beginning to find some difficulties around the supply side. Things are changing for us here in Ireland. Is it because the supply is reducing? Is it because the demand is increasing or is it something else, a bit of both? 
Well, it's a little bit of both and something else, Mandy. The, the real problems that we're seeing in the gas markets here in Ireland at the moment, and particularly in the electricity markets, is not so much a shortage of natural gas or, or, a, or a physical interruption in supply. There's a number of issues related to the price of that natural gas, which is unfortunate. And, and actually, there's very little we can do to control that, unfortunately. It's, it's stuff that's happening in other countries, particularly it's driven by geopolitics with, with, with the influence of Russia in the gas markets in, in Europe. We've seen that very evident at the moment. But it's also triggered a lot by weather. A lot of the, the price increases that we're seeing in natural gas actually has root in very cold, a very cold winter that we had uh, last year, which caused a shortage in, in gas supplies. But at the same time, Mendy, there's almost a coincidence of crises that we're also seeing very low physical reliability of power plants in Ireland last year. And that was a big problem. So it wasn't that there was a physical shortage of gas. The gas was expensive, but the real trigger issue in Ireland last year was that the power plants that were running, that were burning gas, just weren't able to run due to mechanical faults. And that's part and parcel really because a lot of those plants are older. Mm. Um, some of those plants broke down. And when they did break down, it took a long time to fix them, get maintenance, get parts in because of COVID and because of other related issues. Yeah, and you were writing in the Irish Times earlier this week about it um, and suggested a sort of willful blindness that we have, quote, a clear and necessary policy focus on delivering renewable energy to reduce emissions, but a bit of a blind spot when it comes to electricity supply security, end quote. Can you expand on what you mean there? Yeah, yeah. I think Ireland's been very successful in delivering renewables. And we almost got caught up, I suppose, in our own hype, really, uh, Mandy, that we're really focused on renewables. There's a, a very much a, a big political focus, industry focus, which is important because we do need to not only reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, but also reduce our emissions. And the target for the year 2020 was to deliver 40% of our electricity from clean renewables. And we got there and that was very successful. But it was almost that we forgot the other 60%. And that other 60% had to come from conventional generation, such as gas-fired generation, um, uh, coal, and to a lesser extent, peat. Now, we did have to phase out coal and peat, but we kind of took our eye off the target when it comes to security of supply. I suppose there was an over-focus on the deliverable of, of renewables and less of a focus on the reliability of the remaining 60% of the system. And part of this mainly comes back to, I suppose, a, a, a misunderstanding in relation to how renewables fit into the electricity system and to the power system. Uh, renewables are really good for reducing emissions because they reduce the use of fossil fuel plants, but they don't eliminate the need for fossil fuel plants. And that was where the blind spot was mm. in, uh, in Irish uh, electricity policy all, over the last number of years. Um, we needed to be building more um, of power plants to keep up with the aging infrastructure of power plants that, they, that, uh, um, that existed in the system, but also to keep up with growing demand. Unfortunately, we didn't, and we're seeing that materialize now in, in, in price spikes and in these warnings that you mentioned from Airgrid in relation to system tightness. Yeah, a big failure of policymakers and politicians to understand the basic principle that more renewable energy means more baseload requirement. Just to take a broader view of, of energy policy, um, Europe's natural gas production has been in decline for years. Uh, it's left it much more reliant on imports, as you said earlier. And I noted a comment in recent weeks for the envoy from energy security uh, in the US who said that Europe wasn't doing enough to prepare for the crisis. And it's left the EU at the mercy of the weather and Russian President Vladimir Putin's wishes, both notoriously difficult to predict. Would you concur with that? It's not just Ireland who has a blind spot and neglected the matter of security of supply. 
I certainly would. I think it's a very it's a very fair comment. And what we're seeing at the moment is that you know Russia didn't cause this current energy crisis in Europe, but they're benefiting massively from it. Putin is going with the grain of the market, and they're really kind of squeezing it now for everything that it's worked for any kind of political and geopolitical advantage. Uh, and you're right, there that Europe did take our eye off the ball. Part of that again was, I suppose taking long-term optimism blinded us to a lot of the short-term problems. Um, even though we're building a lot of renewables in Europe, which is necessary and required, we're still using huge amounts of natural gas. And that's okay because natural gas is one of the cleaner of the fossil fuels and, and, and it is needed to fill the gap while we build this, this new brave new world around renewable energy. But that'll take time. It might take a decade or two. But at the same time, as you mentioned, we're producing a lot less natural gas in Europe. In the North Sea, natural gas is declining in the Groningen field in the Netherlands, which is which was one of Europe's large super gas fields. Um, that's in serious decline as well at the moment. So there was very little appetite to build new infrastructure and very little appetite to address this. And part of the reason, Mandy, was I guess it was just politically uh, uh, unpopular. Uh, you know, there was a lot of hype and enthusiasm around renewables, which is necessary, as I said. Um, but it did allow us to take the eye off the security of supply. And in many ways, we kind of sleepwalked into this crisis, which is unfortunate. And there's there's very few ways out of it at the moment. We are going to be exposed to the reality of importing lots of natural gas uh, from abroad over the next number of years. We're very reliant on Norway we're, and we're very reliant on Russia. And as you said, Russia is, is a very difficult player to predict at the moment. In the longer term, uh, then, do you think there's any prospect that the government or the state has an avenue to try and make us more self-sufficient um, in the future? Well, the plan at the moment, and I think it's the correct plan, is to, to look at play to our strengths. What are we good at? In Ireland, we have lots of renewables. We have lots of wind. We can grow lots of energy. So we really need to step up the mark and increase the speed at which we're deploying uh, renewables in Ireland. We're, 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 we're actually very slow at the moment. The rollout of wind farms, the rollout of solar farms. Yeah, and can, I, can, can I just pick up on that question in, in particular? Because as you mentioned earlier, wind generation has served us very well, not just in relation to the supply, but also reducing our emissions. The government seems absolutely uh, wedded to the policy and favourably disposed to it, as are all political parties. So I would have thought it was plain sailing when it comes to companies coming in here and developing offshore wind farms. Why can't we just do more of that quickly? It's very frustrating, uh, Mandy. You know, you're right. You know, and a lot of the barriers are, are non-technical barriers. They're on planning. They're on regulation. They're on permits, which is very frustrating. And Ireland risks. There's a reputational risk and an environmental risk here for Ireland, you know, and we've seen this before with large infrastructural projects here in Ireland, the delivery of the Cara project, you know, took way longer than was necessary. It was it was it was very difficult uh, for everyone involved. You know, it was a very unpleasant experience for a lot of people. And we're seeing this replicated now again in large infrastructural projects in Ireland. And there's a risk for Ireland at the moment because there's a lot of global players who have a lot of money who want to invest in renewables, who want to invest in clean energy. They want to invest, but they want to invest in security. They want to invest in reliable policy. And in Ireland, unfortunately, at the moment, we're, we're, we're falling short in this. Things are just taking too long. We must make it easier for investors to invest money in the right places. And we must make it easier for people to do the right thing. And at the moment, we tend to have regulatory barriers and permitting times that are at odds with the urgency that we need to invest in these technologies. Yeah, not something unique to the energy sector. We're, we're seeing it right across the board in terms of um, regulatory yeah. delays yeah, and frustration. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Dr. Paul Dean from University Cork. 
So I wanted to turn briefly to the issue of data centres, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, We're having this debate about data centres at the moment, and it's not like they grew exponentially last year. This is more about the potential future growth. Could you just talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so Ireland is relatively unusual, Mandy, in a European context and even the global context with the amount of data centres. Actually, not so much the amount of data centres that we have here in Ireland, but the amount of electricity that they use as a portion of our overall electricity. So globally, data centres use about 1% of global electricity. And to be honest, a lot of their uh, environmental impacts are relatively benign. And remember, data centres allow us to avoid travel. They allow us to, uh, to connect with family and they allow us to do things in a much more efficient way. And that's a really good thing. But Ireland has a large number in relation to the size of our system here in Ireland. So about 11% of our electricity last year was consumed by data centres. And again, when you compare that to the global average of 1%, you can see that's unusual. Now, that creates a number of other issues. Um, And fundamentally, it comes down to the size of our power system here in Ireland. We're a relatively small, isolated power system with only limited interconnection to other countries. That means operating a power system with such a large amount of energy dedicated to one type of user, it makes it very difficult and they tend to have an outsized impact on how the system operates. But we've got there over the last number of years, as you said, we have, you know, this didn't, this didn't just creep up on us. We have been successfully operating the power system with data centers using huge volumes of electricity. But what's a, of a real concern, Mandy, is the projections of data center um, electricity consumption out into the future. And if we look at numbers from Airgrid who operate the power system here in Ireland, they estimate that maybe anything from a quarter to a third of our electricity over the next decade could be consumed by data centers. And that's difficult because that means that we have to build a lot more renewables to keep pace with that demand. And as we've spoken about previously, we're not really succeeding in that, in, in that element, but a wider issue from an environmental perspective is what do you do if the wind isn't blowing and if the sun isn't shining? Data centers, like all energy consumers, are then going to be using fossil fuel generation from the grid. And that creates emissions and Ireland has very ambitious emissions reduction targets. So that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a circle that needs to be, or a square that needs to be, or a circle that needs to be squared in terms of how are we going to um, reconcile our ambition to welcome data centers here in Ireland for foreign direct investment, but also meet our climate goals at the same time because they will increase electricity consumption. And on the days when the wind isn't there and the sun isn't there, they will be using fossil fuel uh, electricity, which will be adding to our emissions. And that's where the core problem and the core challenge is there. Well, final question, if you don't mind, Paul. Um, it's about the paper that the EU produced just over the Christmas period on the uh, taxonomy document that was um, including gas and nuclear in uh, the European plans. Do you think that that will change government's views around Europe in any way that they might look again at LNG or indigenous gas in the future in a different way? Well, I think it should because it does. It, it is science based, and the thing with with things like natural gas and with uh, with nuclear, while they're not popular, they're they're necessary, and we must always bring it back to the science and look at the evidence rather than the ideology. Uh, it will take time to build the amounts of renewables, the amounts of storage, the amount of interconnection that we need to make a fully renewable energy system in Ireland and in Europe. And during that time, we need to look at the cleanest sources. Of, ele- of, of generating electricity and of, of heating our homes. And natural gas is one of those ways. Same with nuclear. Nuclear is not so much an issue here in Ireland. We don't really have some, but for countries like France, for countries like Germany, it's really important that they maintain their current nuclear fleet uh, because it is clean, 
reliable power. And of all the countries in the world that you want to encourage nuclear, they're open democracies with transparency, with secure governments. You know, these are the places that we need to uh, encourage nuclear to be maintained because it produces very little emissions, very, very low emissions. It's almost comparable to renewables in many ways. And again, if you look at countries like France, today France is generating about 70 percent of their electricity, producing very little emissions from nuclear power. So I think there's very much a future for nuclear in Europe, and very much a future for natural gas in Europe also, but it needs to be clean, it needs to be as efficient as possible and fill that gap while we're building out, out the renewable future that, that, we're, that we're aiming for. Indeed. Um, Paul, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to uh, explain all that to us today. We might have you back another day to explain nuclear power to us. Um, Okay, we'll have to leave it there. That's Paul Dean from University College Cork. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, uh, Russia has amassed over 100,000 troops along Ukraine's borders. And I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, who's Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham. He's also Editor-in-Chief of EA Worldview. And he's here today to help us to understand the background to the Russian-Ukraine impasse. Professor Lucas, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here, Mandy. Before we go back into the history a little bit, can you tell us about the diplomatic talks that are underway in Geneva at present this week? Um, What are they aiming to accomplish? Well, the diplomatic talks, to be blunt, are just trying to get a bit of space given that Russian buildup on the Ukraine border, the threat of invasion by the Russians in recent months, and indeed the wider Russian challenge within Ukraine. Uh, Russia already has military forces uh, in the east supporting separatists. They, of course, annexed Crimea, part of Ukraine, in 2014. They have provided weapons to the separatists. They even shot down a uh, passenger jet in 2014, uh, killing almost 300 people. So you have the ongoing, as it were, campaign inside Ukraine to destabilize the country, at least from the Russian side of what is happening. And then you have, as it were, the immediate headline issue of whether there'll be direct military action. And so the talks around this, there's really three sets of talks. They started at the beginning of the week between the U.S. and Russia. But because U.S. rejected Moscow's demand that this was just a bilateral discussion, uh, the discussions then moved to Brussels with NATO, and they will continue with discussions with the Organization for the Security uh, and Cooperation of Europe, And Ukraine will also be at those talks. Yeah, and you mentioned NATO there. This is a lot to do with politics going back quite some time. uh, And NATO itself was established and designed to do exactly what it's trying to do now, and that is to sort of contain the Soviet Union. I, I get a sense that Russians believe that there was an understanding that NATO wouldn't be allowed to expand beyond its borders and the US are coming from a completely different perspective where they say there's there's no such agreement. Is this part of that ongoing row over the interpretation of those agreements that President Clinton made back in 1997 with uh, Boris Yeltsin? Well, I think there's an important distinction, which is what Vladimir Putin believes rather than what Russians believe in terms of what happened with NATO. Because that agreement you refer to, or that, you know, as it were, understanding, accommodation, was there in the 1990s, in the early years after the Soviet Union 
became Russia. But to really get to the genesis of why this changed, you really have to go back to around about 2007, 2008, where Putin really sort of set that aside in mm. terms of the accommodation with uh, the war with Georgia, a former Soviet republic and now an independent nation. And then secondly, with cyber attacks and other pressure to try to undermine the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Now, from Vladimir Putin's point of view, this may be, as it were, quote, a counterattack rather than aggression. He may be trying to push back on NATO, but certainly from the view not just of the United States, but of European states and other NATO members, this was an example of, of Russia really sort of testing the boundaries, mm. uh, in other words, seeing how far it could go. And when you then bring that up to Ukraine, uh, the fundamental here is that in 2014, when the pro-Russian leader Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown by popular protest, again, Putin may have viewed this as a necessity to hit back. But this wasn't because Ukraine was going to become a member of NATO. It was simply because Putin did not want to see the Ukraine in any point drawing closer to economically, politically, or militarily to the West. And of course, the immediate response was to annex Crimea and to step up the support of uh, the separatists in eastern Ukraine to try to split the country. And is that because he or they believe that Ukraine is different in terms of being outside the Soviet Union, but an integral part of it, really? Well, I think that's a starting point, but I think it's necessary to go further beyond what most people say. So let me explain. I mean, from the standpoint of Ukraine, look, you can go all the way back to the aftermath of the 1917 revolution, which set up the Soviet Union. And Ukraine at that point was independent, and there was a, a, a war between the two countries, and Ukraine was swallowed up by the Soviets and remained so for the next 70 years. Now, that's, that's a fundamental tension that might be, as it were, eased because in the 1990s, then you have Russia and you have Ukraine, but the tension doesn't go away, especially when you do have a, a very mixed Ukraine, that you have Ukrainian speakers, but you also have Russian speakers. You have people of different ethnic backgrounds. And so there's always the question of wielding together a national culture, a national society. And someone like Vladimir Putin can exploit that. But when I say yes and no, I have to add that it's not just Ukraine where, where Russia is putting the pressure on. This isn't just a question of Ukraine and NATO. Uh, the Russian, uh, as it were, not quite warfare, but the attempts to unsettle the Baltic states continues. And it's significant that Russia has demanded not only that NATO break all ties with Ukraine, but that NATO carry out no further new ties with those three Baltic states. When you look at Vladimir Putin really being behind the move by Belarus, his ally, to bring in thousands of refugees and put them on the border with Poland to try to undermine the European Union by bringing up the issue of immigration. You know, Ukraine is definitely an immediate theater of what's happening. But this is a multi-front effort by Putin. His defenders, again, would say to, you know, because he's representing Russia and he's pushing back on NATO. Um, others would say, no, this is an attempt by a man who really has been steeled in the idea that you have to return to the position before 1991, that you have to have a great Russia, an expansive Russia, uh, one that's on, you know, an equal with the West and does so not through diplomatic agreements, but through shows of military and other pressure. So, Professor, we look into some more of his demands in a moment, but having said what you said there, why do you think he's motivated to move now? Well, I, again, I, I need to emphasize that, that Vladimir Putin and uh, 
in Russia are not moving now in a sense that they hadn't been moving before. It's just simply a different phase of what has happened in Ukraine post-2014. Um, in other words, within weeks of the fall of Viktor Yanukovych, the Russians had hit back and they hit back hard. I mean, they took you know, the entire Crimean Peninsula. They threatened to take other territory that would have further cut off Ukraine. Uh, within months, they had supplied those missiles to the separatists not just to be used against Ukrainian forces, but the one that shot down the Malaysian jetliner. Uh, they carried out cyber attacks and have done so without pause for almost eight years so to disrupt the Ukrainian economy and infrastructure. Um, so in other words, when you put the military troops on the border in 2021, 2022, it's not necessarily to threaten an invasion, but it's to give you leverage. So you get the negotiations over the military troops, and you maybe you get an agreement which says, okay, our military troops won't cross the border, but NATO, you have to stand back. You have to break links with Ukraine. Uh, no weapons, no training, no logistics. And if you get that type of agreement, you open up further space for the Russian activities that won't stop. In other words, you know, the special forces that are already on the ground in the east and the other Russian, what you might call hybrid warfare, that will continue against Kiev. Are there other demands that that he has beyond Ukraine not joining NATO and removing the forces from former uh, Soviet states? Are there additional things that um, he's asking for? Well, the general Russian line, the way this will be framed, is security guarantees. Now, security guarantees as a point of rhetoric is really security guarantees for Vladimir Putin and for Moscow. And it sets it up where if these talks do not go anywhere, these diplomatic talks, that Putin will play the victim and say, look, it's, you know, it's the West, it's the aggressor, it's, they won't provide security guarantees for Moscow, they're using Ukraine against us. But I think beyond that PR, there is a space that can be explored, uh, which would deal with some of, if you want to call them Putin's concerns, and that is a wider security framework for Europe. If you really are talking about getting stability in Europe, if you're really talking about returning to the position pre-Putin in the 1990s, you talk about a position where both sides give assurances. Let's start with, for example, on nuclear forces. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration, um, in its own chaotic way, had stepped back from nuclear agreements with Russia. Uh, but of course, before the Trump administration, the George W. Bush administration had done so in the early years of the 21st century. Can you get those nuclear agreements back on the table, uh, covering medium-range uh, nuclear forces, short-range nuclear forces? Can you get agreements which are about conventional forces, which is, all right, we're not going to, uh, you know, NATO's going to continue to, to assist Ukraine, provide defensive weapons, okay. Russia's going to continue to build up its army, uh, supply its allies with defensive weapons. But can we make an agreement that... Uh, military troops will not be deployed on borders, that we will not have military exercises, which also appear to be threats to launch an invasion. Can you do that? Can you reach agreements on cyber warfare, which is this new phase of warfare below the surface of armies, navies, and air forces, that you don't disrupt other people's infrastructure, um, you don't disrupt other countries' elections? Mm -hmm. Can you get to that point? In other words, this security framework, interestingly, and how quickly time moves on, was actually put forth by the United States in the speech by Joe Biden when he met Vladimir Putin this spring. But in a way, that attempt to pitch a security framework to the Russians 
has been pushed aside because of the hot spot of Ukraine and how the maneuvers have taken place since then. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham. And as you say, cybersecurity becoming a, a very big part of the Russian arsenal in terms of geopolitical warfare. But let's look at the other side of it for a second and turn to America. So Biden is seen very much as the guardian of post-World War II order. And those principles have stood up for a long time. We've come to take them for granted, if you like. And the first among those principles is that boundaries are not changed by force. Could you just talk to us a little bit about the sanctions that they're threatening should things escalate from the American side? What type of sanctions are they are they proposing? Well, well first, I want to widen this a little bit beyond Biden being the guardian of the some people have called the liberal international order since 1945. Certainly the United States is part of that. But because of the changes in the world in the 21st century, it's not just Biden and the U.S. that have, as you put it, skin in the game. And that is, uh, America is no longer, I think, in a position where it leads and other country follows. I think Iraq 2003, beyond Europe, uh, damaged that. I think also the fact is, is that their shifting power relationships, including not just the, only the European Union, but also China. So I, I think it just can't simply be that Biden is the one who goes and sets the rules of the game, as you put it. You actually have to have the European Union. You actually have to have non-EU European states. You actually have to have NATO as being part of this. You know, Ireland, even from the position of being outside NATO, plays a part of this politically and economically. So I, I, I think we have to rethink the way we think of this and not just make it a U.S. versus Russia contest. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I, you know, let's be clear that the economic front is a key way that you push back against uh, Putin um, if you believe he is being aggressive. But it's not just U.S. sanctions. It's also European sanctions. Again, I need to emphasize that, mm-hmm. that uh, when the United States has moved with sanctions since 2014 against Russia because of Ukraine, um, and indeed because of other issues, such as the interference in elections, including the uh, 2016 U.S. election, they have done so in lockstep with the Europeans. Uh, the EU has also imposed sanctions on Russia. They're just not as, uh, let's say, as prominent in headlines as what Washington does. And I think it's really important to remember that before Biden went to Geneva and met Putin in the spring, he made it very clear that he was reversing the Trump policy of mm-hmm. ripping up the U.S.-European alliance. He spoke uh, both individ- with individual European leaders and, of course, with European leaders collectively. Now, this doesn't mean that the U.S. and European countries are always in total agreement on what steps you take, on the pace with which you take them. There are differences. There are diff- differences within Europe. But I think generally the, the, the issue of bringing back the rules of the game, as I would put it, that was the starting point that brought the Biden administration and Europe closer together. And that's still the case. And I think the fact is, is that Vladimir Putin may have gambled and miscalculated in the first stages of this latest, if you want to call it crisis or conflict. I think he was gambling. He could put a wedge between the U.S. and Europe mm. and between NATO and Ukraine and that he could exploit that to get more room to maneuver. But so far, you have not seen that division in the U.S., European NATO alliance. And indeed, I think the firmness has pushed Putin back just a bit, 
where he has had to go into these talks. And yeah, for, for a number of different reasons, they may be pushed together as allies and, and this is is, is just uh, cementing their relationships. Um, just want to look at the, the piece of sanctions for a moment. I know that the financial sanctions uh, we mentioned, um, there's also the uh, technological sanctions. And as you mentioned earlier, the cyber warfare is becoming uh, more of an issue there. Um, the Americans are... are proposing to cut off supply of semiconductors and U.S. patented designs. Would that have a real effect on consumers in Russia? Do you think that that's a, a credible threat that would have any influence? I think. I mean, I think it might increase the cost to, to some Russian entities of, of, of doing business because, you know, you're, in effect, uh, you're cutting off one source of supply. But I think when it comes to semiconductors, for example, the Russians probably have uh, other sources of supply they'll go to, for example, China. Mm. Uh, now, whether they can get the same quality, whether they can get the same price, that's a different matter. But I, I'm sort of saying to you that I think that specific sanction, that technological sanction, not only on semiconductors, but on any components which could be used in a Russian arms or aerospace industry, uh, I don't think it has a huge impact. I think what the Americans are considering, and again, probably with alongside the Europeans, which is more important is... Um, limiting Russia's ability to carry out global financial transactions. Mm. Uh, now, some of your folks out there might know something called the Swiss system, which we have to use to move money back and forth in different currencies. That applies to nations as well. Uh, if you going to its furthest, uh, as they have done with Iran, the U.S. and the Europeans could cut um, the Russians off from SWIFT. They don't necessarily have to go that far, and I don't think they would do so in the initial steps, but I think they would say, look, it's the question of how you move your money where we're going to hit you, because who does that affect? It really doesn't affect Russians per se. It affects the richest Russians. And here's the key point, which makes, if not Russia, then Putin vulnerable. Russia's richest men are all Putin allies. Mm. They're all very much linked to him. It's almost as what Mark Gagliotti has called a kleptocracy, where they have gotten themselves rich, not on keeping their money in Russia, but on being able to extract money and then put it into Western bank accounts, put it into Western property, put it into other uh, Western commodities. If you can limit that and you hurt the people around Putin, the thinking is maybe they think twice about supporting an aggressive policy. Professor, if there were no diplomatic solutions coming out of this and Putin were to proceed, what are the options um, available to him in terms of invasion? Could he look at a more limited invasion and, 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 and view this in a different way? Or what, what, what's ahead of him? I mean, I think the first thing to say, which is to move on to your question, some people may say, if you're not going to get a diplomatic solution, why do you even have diplomatic talks? You do so because... To, to lift Churchill's phrase, jaw-jaw is better than world war. Mm -hmm. you, you get time. Now your question is, if you run out of time, the talks don't go anywhere, do we face a Russian military invasion? Uh, the U.S. military, interestingly, gives us a guide to this, because in advance of the talks, they let it be known some of the intelligence they have on Russia, the way that they're calculating. And what they were calculating is, is that Russia might invade Ukraine uh, in January, this month, if the territory was frozen. Because when you have frozen territory, which quite often has been the case in the winters in eastern Ukraine, you can move much more easily with heavy military equipment, with tanks, for example. But it's been a warm winter in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, the ground has not frozen, which makes the ability to move heavy equipment much more difficult. And what the U.S. military was flagging up is, look, if there was a possibility of an invasion, it might have been deferred, not because of the talks, 
but because of the weather. Um, be that as it may, there's a little bit of, of disagreement amongst analysts as to whether or not Putin was trying, really seriously is meaning to go across with, to seize part of eastern Ukraine with an invasion. Mm -hmm. um, some analysts think he will try to take part of eastern Ukraine to further destabilize the country and to get more leverage. I'm of the other opinion, which is that those military troops were there to create the headline, both to get leverage, but also to divert us from what Russia is already doing. In other words, what Putin was wanting to do was to get negotiations over those military exercises where there are no negotiations. There's no pressure on him over the Russian special forces, over the support of the separatists as they refuse to negotiate with Kiev. And indeed, as Russia carries out other operations, not only against Ukraine, but other states, such as the cyber operations. Fascinating. It got him to the table. Just final word, Professor, how likely is it in your view that this could move from a, a cold war to a hot one? I, I, I think that it's that's what gets the headlines, but I don't think that's what we're facing. I think rather than talk about a hot war in January, February, March, April, I think you have to put this into the longer view, which is there in effect has been a war, an economic war, a political war, a war of propaganda and disinformation, which is already going on over Ukraine. Um, and that will continue uh, whether or not any Russian conventional forces step foot across that border or whether they just simply are perched there for the next two, three, six months. Well, that was a fascinating insight into what's developing on the international stage. That's Scott Lucas, who's Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, I'm joined from London by Nathan Law. He's a pro-democracy activist, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, a former legislator from Hong Kong, and he became the youngest lawmaker in history in Hong Kong and is currently living in exile in London. He's the author of a book called Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. Nathan, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Nathan, before we talk about your book, would you mind outlining for our listeners just a little bit about your background in Hong Kong and how you became involved in uh, political activism? I'm a democratic activist from Hong Kong. Um, I was a student leader in uh, the protest in 2014, uh, the umbrella movement that we occupied major runways in Hong Kong in order to fight for um, universal suffrage. And then after that, I um, I continued to devote myself into political activism. In 2016, I found my own political party, and then in uh, in the in the same year, I also was elected as the youngest ever legislator in Hong Kong at the age of 23. And just like uh, in in 2020, I had to leave Hong Kong because of the implementation of the national security law, and I got um, the asylum status last April in the UK. Yeah, I want to talk to you about your departure from Hong Kong in a moment and um, what you've been doing since. But I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about um, your role in that umbrella movement and how you made the transition from being a political activist to um, somebody who's part of a political system. You actually did manage to get into the political system, didn't you? Yeah, so in 2014, when I was just a freshman in university, I decided to be involved in these um, student activism because I believe that um, that was a big era in Hong Kong. Uh, we were having political um, reform and we tried to 
hold China, the Chinese government accountable by appealing to them, saying that you must keep their promise um, by implementing democracy in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of protests, and um, and the largest one was uh, the Umbrella Movement that we occupied major runways. Um, and after that, I was be uh, I was um, being featured under the spotlight. And in 2016, we believe that uh, we need to inherit the spirit of the umbrella movement and inject youth energy into the legislative council. So we decided to have our own political party um, alongside with uh, the other student activists, Joshua Wong and Xiao. And eventually I um, became part of um, the legislative council. But for me, it's just a platform to amplify what we've been doing on the street and I always believe that um, in the authoritarian model in Hong Kong, the only way to make a concrete change is by um, street actions is outside of the system. Yeah, um, one part of that story that, that struck me was um, the swearing in ceremony and um, what happened in the aftermath of your speech uh, when you became part, part of the legislature. Would you just give our listeners a flavor of that, please? Yeah, after we got elected, we had to um, take an oath, which um, um, anybody around the world, when they got elected, they would do the same. And I decided to act in few lines before and after the oath taking, uh, which was actually uh, um, a council tradition. Mm. Um, there had been precedents about adding words that you want to say to the people um, before or after the oath-taking section. And before that, I, I said that I quoted um, Gandhi saying that you can imprison my mind. Uh, you can imprison my body, but you can never imprison my mind. And that was um, exactly what I wanted to promise my uh, supporters that even though I am in this legislative chamber, even though they will imprison me, but I will continue to fight for democracy. And because of these statements, the government issued an interpretation of our constitution in order to set new legal requirements and then apply them retrospectively in order to invalidate my oath and then kick me out of the council. After nine months of serving the people, I was unseated because of the government's suppression. And um, a month after the disqualification, I went to jail because of my participation in the umbrella movement. Yeah, it makes you wonder, do we really understand in the West what is happening uh, when it comes to the fundamental realities of the freedom of expression and freedom to gather when you hear a story like that that's so prescient in our time? But can we just look at the issue of the national security law? Now, you decided to come to London shortly after Hong Kong introduced that national security law. But by that time, you'd been campaigning for quite a lot of time. What, what was different about that law that made you eventually leave? Or did you leave of your own volition? The national security law criminalized free speech and it transformed the whole legal system as a weapon to target democratic campaigners. Um, Before the national security law, uh, we could do advocacy work over, for example, appealing um, the international community to hold the Chinese government accountable to address a lot of human rights problems in Hong Kong. But for now, these things become illegal uh, in Hong Kong. And during the process of implementing that, uh, the Beijing government circumvented all the local legislation and consultation process in order to um, publish 
they are most draconian version that basically no Hong Kong people would agree that it fits into our own legal system and it protects our human rights. So after the implementation of that, uh, there have already been more than 100 cases. Um, some of them, they were just chanting slogan on the street. They were just holding certain sites in the protest. And one landmark case um, is the primary election case. The government says that the, the group of democratic campaigners who participated in the primary election because um, they wanted to get a majority in the council and possibly vetoing government's bill so that they have committed a subversive act. Uh, the government basically equals um, the act of vetoing government's bills to overturning the government and then um, to a subversive act. Um, so that most of my friends, democratic campaigners in Hong Kong are in jail because of participating in a primary election which every single country in their political system, if they're having an election, they would do it. Um, and that is how absurd the law is, and that is how absurd the politi political development in Hong Kong has been. And were you surprised at the speed of the trajectory of, of how things changed after that law was implemented? The speed of it is, is daunting. Uh, basically, the whole civil society in Hong Kong including the largest independent workers' union, including the largest independent media news outlet, um, the organization that hosts the 4th of June Tiananmen Massacre um, Candlelight Vigil. All these organizations that are backbones of the civil society um, have been closed for the past year. Um, and the government takes uh, one year to basically destroy decades of um, accumulation and the case of foundation of our, our our civil society, and I don't think many people predicted that, that speed. Um, we all could foresee the trajectory, and that's why we marched down to the street. But um, that um, the way that they did it, um, and the way that they disregard all the international pressure, um, has been quite unprecedented, and it really frightens people. Indeed, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're talking to Nathan Law, who's a pro-democracy advocate. Now, since 2014, and in particular in 2019, your protests caught the attention of the world. Looking back on, on all of your um, attempts to rally support, how do you feel about it now? What do you feel you've achieved? Even though um, we have not garnered any concrete political results saying that we have a more democratic system we failed to achieve the same but i think um we have completely changed the the perception of the world to china if you ask people five years back in the uk or in 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 ireland in 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 the europe people would relate um china to business opportunity um to golden era positive things. But now when you talk, talk to people about China, they first would recognize them as um, they, would, they would think of Human Rights Foundation in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang. And these um, association and perceptions are crucial to shape public opinion. The reason why Hong Kong suffers so much suppression is because um, Beijing had always had free pass on the human rights violation. The world wanted to engage and appease them because they wanted to do business with China. 
so that they put a blind eye um, to all these human rights violations. But the resistance of Hong Kong in 2019, which um, basically all the media outlet, um, all of their front pages were talking about it, completely changed that perception. Yeah, and I, I think it is it, really crucial uh, for us to develop a, a much more assertive China policy to 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 address those problems. Yeah, a lot of the book is about raising awareness, and also a big part of the book is about speaking up. Um, it's not easy though. Um, do you find the sacrifices that you've made personally have been worth it? What What is it like for you, um, living away from the place where you love, and presumably most of your family are there? How has that um, affected your own life? I was in jail because of my participation in peaceful civil disobedience action. I was forced to leave my home. Um, I had to cut my ties with my family in order to protect them. I left behind so much in Hong Kong. I am now living a life of exile as a political refugee in the UK. It sounds like there are lots of sacrifices, but um, for me, as long as I can have more opportunity to devote myself to the movement, uh, I feel like these sacrifices are all worthwhile. Um, for now, I'm in a free country that I can speak freely. If I were in Hong Kong, I would be jailed for decades because for now I am literally on the top of the wanted list under the national security law. And I cannot speak up for my fellows so for me, um, living a life in exile, of course, is is difficult, it's tough, but at least I I can speak freely and free from the threat of the national security law, and I'm grateful for that. And a big part of the book, Nathan, is about trying to raise awareness and an understanding of what we might look out for when autocracy is in ascendance. There's a number of things um, that that are in common. Can can you just take us through those things that that we might look out for? Yeah, definitely. Um, in Hong Kong's case, uh, we, can, we can learn a lot about how they corrupt a system that was supposed to be um, free. Mm. Um, so um, the government implemented um, laws that um, could really uh, deprive people's freedom, and that's the obvious one. But they also have um, been doing a lot of different other things, for example, they, um, alongside with a lot of state-controlled um, enterprise, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, they bought um, media outlets. They started to shift their um, leadership in order to control how they publish. And they also criminalized investigative journalists and closed down all the avenues to do investigative journalism by acquiring um, information from the government in order to stop the circulation of truth. And if you take a look at um, how they are um, dealing with, um, for example, the, the legal system, they um, they basically weaponize the whole legal system by um, refusing people to uh, receive um, legal aid to defend them um, with their own lawyers. Um, they're basically um, getting rid of judges that are seem seemingly fair and then to promote their own ones. Um, these are definitely signs that we could look um, and we discerned and it's definitely a, a trace for them to become more and more authoritarian. 
Yeah. Now you're living in the UK um, at the moment. You're no doubt uh, completely alive to all the huge political issues, social and economic ones that are happening there. Would you say that their democracy is under threat? I think we've been witnessing rise of populist, um, tribalized politics, uh, not only in the UK, but around the world. Um, we are in well, the second decades of democratic recession and we are facing a lot of challenges. Um, so for me, it, not only we have to deliver um, democratic system, have to deliver results and to be um, more focused on providing facts and facilitating discussion and promoting empathy. But of course, we have to understand that part of the reasons why we are in a global democratic recession is because um, we have not been addressing the rise of authoritarianism properly. Um, when we talk about what we can gain from the rise of these countries, we have not been developing mechanisms to hold them accountable. So I think this is also one thing that we have to revive our thinking. Um, and this is one of the core themes in the book that we must address the rise of authoritarianism with um, our collective efforts and amassing resources to um, create mechanisms that can really hold them accountable, including the Transhumanist Party. And um, Nathan, do you see, uh, just final question to wrap up here, do you see um, hope on the horizon for you in terms of going back to Hong Kong, things improving there? It's difficult to be optimistic about Hong Kong. Um, at least in the short-term future, its political situation is so dire. But for me as an activist, I'm not entitled to lose hope. We are here to enlighten and mobilize people to commit themselves into the cause that they uh, feel like worth fighting for and towards justice. So for me, even though it takes decades, I do believe that there is a day that I would step into Hong Kong soil when it's free and democratic. Well, the book is a fascinating insight into your journey. It's called Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. That's Nathan Law, pro-democracy activist. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to today's guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day.